who would have known Betty Davis eyes would have been a hit, but because it was on the radio, heavy airplay, it was like, well, yeah, you start liking it because you've heard it so much. So it becomes familiar. And I think that's a lot of what games are too. Yeah. It's, it's funny you say that because uh, uh, Tony, the Tony Hawk games, the uh, skateboarding games, are really known for their soundtrack and you know kids like literal teenagers were playing that game for hours and hours and hours and passively listening to the same soundtrack over and over again and uh certain bands from that from that soundtrack especially goldfinger uh for their superman song is kind of like so iconic that most people associate that song with tony hawk If you're watching on YouTube, please like, subscribe, and leave a comment about the episode. And if you're watching on Spotify or listening on a traditional podcast platform, please follow, rate us five stars, and leave a review if you would be so kind. Thank you. Welcome to the Way to Know You podcast, season two, episode 30. My name is Nick Rounds, and I will be your host. My next guest has been a composer and sound designer professionally for over 30 years, having designed sounds and composition for pinball machines, slot machines, and video games. He's always supported fun through audio and music. When he's not busy writing his next commission piece, he's enjoying the scenic views of the Pacific Northwest. Dwayne Decker. Wait, I know you. How are you today, Dwayne? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm well. It's good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. Even though we've been talking for like 30, 20 minutes before this, but <laughs> they don't know that. <laughs> uh Full disclosure, Dwayne and I used to work together, um, uh, and we'll we'll talk more about that. Uh, but Dwayne is an absolute linchpin uh, to me from the auto standpoint. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed working with him, and uh, I want to talk about all the cool stuff that Dwayne does uh, as an audio designer because uh, a lot of people kind of take music and sound in video games for granted, uh, not just video games, but also slot machines and pinball machines for granted. Um, and I want to dig into all that stuff as, as to why it's important and like why it's how you've made your living for the past 30 plus years. So, um, but before we kick into your professional career, I actually want to start with what gave you the music bug. So what inspired you to get involved with music full time? Oh, um, it goes way, way back. Uh, my godmother was a wonderful person. When I was six years old, she took me and my family to a, a show, a, you know, floor show. And I was enamored with the drummer. I, I was just going, yeah, yeah, that's so cool. Um, and then once she took me, she was a pipe organist at church. So she took me to church while she rehearsed. And I, I saw her on this gigantic pipe organ with all of the pipes. It was it was awesome and just enveloping when she played. Uh, and then she turned around and goes, hey, you want to play it? <laughs> and I actually got to play this massive pipe organ, you know, going. <laughs> and it, it kind of stuck with me. So I started playing drums in school when I was eight. That started off a whole thing, uh, not, not only in school, but the silly parties. I was the tenor drummer for an all-girl color guard, competitive color guard. How did that work out? <laughs> At 11. It, it, it was great. The bus rides home, you know, 11-year-old with these teenager girls, you know, like, well, wow, yeah, this is pretty cool. Um, and then by the time I was 13, I was playing in bands, making money, God, you know, um, that was pretty cool. Uh, moved from upstate New York to California uh, right before, what was it? Sophomore year, I think, and continued to play with bands. There majored in music in college. Um, while I was in college, 
I kept hearing about synthesizers and I really went, oh, this is so cool. I got to do this. Of course, I couldn't spend the kind of money to buy a modular Moog and, or a little portable synth for that matter. So I got creative. Um, I went up to Los Angeles and went to a little shop where Tom Oberheim actually owned the shop. And he was so cordial and I was so enthusiastic. He gave me uh, an ARP 2600 owner's manual because I, I had no clue. I was just fiddling with knobs and it was so much fun. But when he did that, it, it sparked something in me to go, yeah, uh, not only do I love the synthesizer sound, but I got to play keyboards. So that's when I started playing not only drums and flute, but uh, keyboards. So uh, when I think it was my final year in college, I found an electronic uh, engineer student at school. He needed a project and I needed a synthesizer. So at about a third of the price of what the synth was, we got together and built it. And he did the all the electronic components. So I, I can't can't profess to be an engineer, but um, that was also the synth that I went uh, uh, on tour with with my first touring band across the U.S. Um, so I had a Hammond and my custom-made synth um, and touring bands. That particular band, we were out on the road for four years, and I think we were only home for maybe a total of a month. So we we were a road band for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but like with any band, that that kind of comes and goes. Um, what uh, what years was that? Um, just out of curiosity, and what kind of music were you playing around that time? We were playing a combination of cover material and. Uh, original stuff um that would have been in the 70s and uh, we did the, the the whole nine yards we got to open up for uh people who was it that was it was hilarious we were in like colorado somewhere and we opened up for this legendary jazz guy <laughs> and we couldn't figure it out it how do we get this booking? But we did some showcases in Hollywood. We recorded at Capitol Records Studios. All of that stuff just kind of it, it fuels the desire to go for it. Um, after that band, I played in a few other bands, including a touring uh, cover band that taught me a lot about some of the really harder uh, to play stuff, Earth, Wind and Fire, Kansas, Boston, you know, all the stuff that I was like, holy crap, this is, this is hard. <laughs> um, but because of that, I got an offer to join an original band, um, Lois Lane. Uh, we ended up in Chicago and uh, did very well there, um, touring uh, U.S. and Canada still from time to time, but Chicago was a great city at that time. Uh, the late 70s, you could make a living off a plane and not travel more than 100 miles. There were that many clubs. And uh, we eventually uh, were on heavy rotation on the Loop, which is was the D-Rock station in Chicago. And it, it was one of those mega stations to where it, it broadcasts all over million watts or whatever. I don't remember, but but that was that was a lot of fun. Um, that fizzled out, um, and I decided to go for what was actually my second uh, solo act. Um, I had done a solo act in college with the synthesizer and drums and flute, and I rented a piano. This time, I was seeing people like Howard Jones uh, doing all the stuff himself. And I go, 
yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> I gotta try that. Uh, so, uh, oh, I guess I'm I'm skipping over a part. I'm sorry. Um, it's okay. After Madam Beast, which was the band from Hollywood, uh, I scraped together enough money uh, to buy a modular Moog, uh, an actual modular Moog from Beaver and Kraus, who was uh, an experimental electronic group, group duo, I should say. So I ended up with a modular Moog, and it, it, uh, it, it really helped understand uh, the power of that sound. And so I, I have always been a fan. Um, and getting back to, where was it? My second solo act. I actually uh, formed a corporation, uh, gathered money from shareholders, and invested a whole bunch of money in um, Oberheim uh, gear, OBX, two OBXAs, DMX drum machine, DSX sequencer, a Mo Taurus pedal setup. So I could uh, sound like a four-piece band. And in theory, it was awesome. The trouble was, back then, there were no hard drives. And the memory on the synths were very small. So I would go through, depending on how complex the songs were, I would have to uh, reprogram all of the stuff uh, from cassette tape. And so I would stop my show and turn on some background music and people would go, what's he doing? <laughs> and I would try to explain, and I know, well, this is live. The trouble is my backup band needs to be fed. So it, uh, uh, it, it was interesting. And I, I did tour um, the Midwest college circuit. And that was fun, you know. College kids are always a blast. And I did a couple uh, club dates. Um, and after that, it was kind of like, okay, I keep trying to get these gigs. So I, on the side, went back to college, took a, a year's worth of computer science classes. And when it came time for calculus, <laughs> yeah, that's now, most people drop now off. I think I need to look elsewhere. <laughs> I, uh, on the side, too, uh, during that time, I was doing freelance gigs as a product specialist uh, for uh, synthesizer manufacturers. Um, and not a lot. And I'd say a handful. But they'd fly me out to where, wherever the uh, date was, a, a, a show, a, a, a clinic, whatever. And my manager who sent me to those places ended up at Kurzweil Music Systems. And they had the most fantastic sounding synthesizer I had ever heard. The problem was that it was like $15,000. And people like Stevie Wonder who helped design it, they could afford it. <laughs> you know? right. uh, but uh, it, it, I couldn't certainly afford it, but I had the opportunity to uh, use that gear. I was a product specialist for Kurzweil for, I think it was around four years. Um, I got to work with Bob Moog, who was then working for uh, Kurzweil as the chief uh, creative officer. I, I forget. He was designing new stuff with them that's awesome so i got a chance to be with him at trade shows so i took him out on the road a couple times uh and it's like that's that's the ideal dog and pony show it's like who doesn't know bob moak you know right. and he is such he was was such a a down-to-earth guy i i love being with him and and enjoying his insights um let's see so 
full time at Kurzweil. Um, Kurzweil was purchased, uh, acquired. <laughs> um, I went at that point to Emu Systems. Uh, again, these people were were geniuses, and, and uh, the instruments were awesome. And I got a chance to work with them for years as a product specialist. Uh, but I was always on the road. And by this time, I had a family. And I kind of go, you know, five days a week on the road. And, and there was one time in particular that really was a sign, I guess. Come back uh, from wherever. My wife and um, baby daughter were met me at the gate. And my daughter wouldn't talk to me. She wouldn't even look at me. She was just, she was mad because dad was never home. So that that kind of flipped the trigger of going, okay, I got to figure out how to get off the road. Um, and about that time, um, Keyboard Magazine had a, an article about how game music and sounds were getting more sophisticated. It was a little tiny article, but I, that got me thinking. And I, I knew that there were companies in Chicago that were doing games. Williams, Bally, um, uh, Gottlieb, uh, not only video games, but pinball games. Right. And I hit good timing because I approached uh, Gottlieb uh, about being a, a composer sound designer. And about a week later, I got a call back saying, Hey, our audio guy's leaving. What do you think? <laughs> you want the gig? And I was going, yeah, Hey, <laughs> I'll do it. And, uh, that was around the uh, early nineties. Is that correct? I think so. Yeah. 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 Um, and so I, I learned the proprietary system. I programmed original music into a, a soundboard with, I think it was four note polyphony. It, it was just insanely stupid. FM technology, so it was really brassy, digital sounding. But I had some sampled drums. I'd like a a bass drum, a snare, and maybe a cymbal. So that was a challenge, but it was also really exciting because you could change stuff, the sound of the FM synth on the fly. And the options were, were literally endless. Um, so I learned a lot from that one. So what was it like uh, to get started at Gottlieb and like working on a pinball machine and designing pinball machines, like what are some of the things that you have to deal with them and know about? Well, beyond the uh, limited publicity, uh, polyphony, <laughs> it's hard to say, polyphony, uh, learning, probably learning pinball itself. I had never played pinball ever in my life. And I had, uh, I worked with people who were like some of the best pinball players in the world. The engineers, um, were some of the most creative people, the, the, uh, the games themselves. Uh, I watched them play and a couple times they would teach me tricks about, well, here's what you do to save a ball from going in the gutter, that kind of thing, or how to how to nudge the machine so that it just puts the ball in the right place, that kind of stuff. Um, the I don't know if it was a challenge; it's just the way it worked. The uh, stuff that I did were it was all MIDI, uh, essentially. And the MIDI controls were uh, transferred to a chip, uh, PROM, I think, um, programmable, programmable ROM. 
So I would have to burn those chips, take it over to the demo machine and take the old one out, put the new one in and test it. Um, not as easy as a tape deck, but it's, right. no digital recording there was all, it was all that. Um, the volumes and stuff were uh, controllable, but there was so much going on at any one point. Uh, I didn't do the sound effects. I just did the music, but the music also had uh, like any game. It, this has to trigger. And if there's music attached to that and how, um, how you can go from one to another without um, losing track, maybe I should say. Yeah. It should be instantaneous, but you don't want the player to go from here to out there. You, you need to have a coherent uh, theme and variations of the theme and uh, things... Um, I think the only the only song that was licensed was Rescue 911, which was a TV show, and uh, they licensed the music for that. Everything else was original, so I had the freedom to uh, do whatever I'd like. I would do research on uh, the the theme, the. The one that was probably the most fun is Stargate. Uh, Stargate, they couldn't afford, they could never afford the licenses to most of the games. So I actually asked for a script and the movie wasn't out yet. Uh, it was going to be released at the same time as the movie. So I asked for the script. I was amazed that they actually sent me a script and I read the script. I got the vibe of each part, the sarcophagus, the, this ramp and that ramp, and all the things that the designers were trying to accomplish. And uh, when all was said and done, uh, my music wasn't really that different from the movie. I was, I was amazed at some of the things that I knew would work and obviously the composer for the movie knew it would work. <laughs> so it was a real eye-opener to go, hey, I might be pretty good at this. Um, but I didn't live in Hollywood, so I couldn't do movies. <laughs> sure. Well, it's yeah, it's pretty awesome to strike a balance between Egyptian and sci-fi and see what kind of works there. But yeah. Mm -hmm. Were there any other notable favorites or just machines that you worked on um, that are memorable with you besides Rescue 901 and Stargate? Um, Freddy was fun. Nightmare on Elm Street specifically? Uh, yeah. 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 It, it, it was so iconic <laughs> to go, oh, okay, yeah, I could do that. And scary music, yeah, sci-fi and, and dreams and stuff. So that, that was a fun one. I uh, I liked it. And it's not that I didn't like the others. It's just some some you remember more of. Oh, the light bulb went off there, and I did this, and I'm proud of that. You know, it uh, just a matter of. Um, giving it your all it, it i always had the philosophy of anything you do that's going to be released make sure you do it to the best of your ability there are games that i've worked on that okay this i'm really not interested in the subject but you never know when lightning is going to strike and that game is going to take off you know, and that's what you're going to be noted for. Your your reputation, your career is, is uh, bound by the stuff that you've done. And people don't care whether you didn't get paid a lot for this this game. What they care about is what what is it here? Do they remember it? Is it 
um, something that they would listen to outside of the game. Um, and I'm fortunate enough to have fans that actually listen to my music outside of the games. And I, I guess it's, it's like anything. It's like being on radio. Uh, if you get enough airplay on radio, well, I don't know how it is now, but at the time, if you, if you got enough airplay on radio, you could very well be famous. And it didn't matter as much sometimes whether the music was really good is because it, it was played all the time. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, yeah, I remember that. <clears throat> I think Nile Rogers put it put it best. Um, he he said, you know, who would have known Betty Davis' eyes would have been a hit, but because it was on the radio, heavy airplay, it was like, well, yeah, you start liking it because you've heard it so much, so it becomes familiar. And I think that's a lot of what games are too. Um, people and at that stage were playing games hours and hours a day. So they heard the same thing over and over and they felt attached to it. Um, yeah. It's, it's funny you say that because uh, uh, Tony, the Tony Hawk games, the uh, skateboarding games are really known for their soundtrack and, you know, kids like literal teenagers were playing that game for hours and hours and hours and passively listening to the same soundtrack over and over again and uh certain bands from that from that soundtrack especially goldfinger uh for their superman song is kind of like so iconic that most people associate that song with tony hawk and um they probably wouldn't be as big or as notable without you know that stuff in a video game and it's funny how uh, a band or a song um will come and go but if it's in a video game, it's almost immortal. And it's also funny that you touch on the fact that like you've worked on stuff that um, have, has stuck with people. And I think that's something that pe most people don't really, or that's something that people take for granted is like the emotional impact of like this piece of art in general uh, meant something to me. And um, within living memory, it's, it's funny how like even just the simplest thing that you do as an artist, if, if it sticks with somebody and resonates with them, you might have a fan for life and they'll keep following to see what you're doing. And yeah. if they like your style, they'll probably continue to listen to your music. So I think that's always an important thing to call out because yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. And it's, it's gratifying because being a composer sound designer is something you do in a room with closed doors. You're not on stage. Nobody knows your name. Um, it, it, it exemplifies also the fact that at the same time I was doing pinball, I started doing production music for production music libraries for TV. And there was a slow climb, but again, um, just randomly I had the TV on and I would hear that sounds familiar. <laughs> hey, wait, that's mine. <laughs> you know, on these TV shows, mostly cable. Some of them were, I, I think the, the one they used the most of my music was, uh, gosh, I forget the name now. Um, <laughs> uh, what, what, what man versus food. <laughs> oh, man versus food. Seriously. Man versus food. They, huh. they would almost every episode had at least five seconds some of them 30 seconds and at the time i was doing a lot of dramatic stuff which is great for that program because you know he has to eat this much in an hour <laughs> you know <laughs> uh i i got uh, pump audio was my publisher and they were pretty big at the time with uh TV shows that couldn't really afford composers, they would they would get production music and uh, a lot cheaper than hiring a composer. Um, but they didn't own the copyright, so a lot of my material was used over and over and over again. Um, I think I had 
probably 200 tracks maybe um, in production music libraries. So every once in a while, I, I have the TV on and hear something and go, cool, <laughs> you know, add it to the list. <laughs> That's awesome. But well, then I, yeah. I'd see my royalty check from ASCAP and I go, well, wasn't that cool. <laughs> that's hilarious i uh i just watched a uh i i'm on tiktok i hate tiktok but uh weirdly my for you page which is it just serves you whatever it feels like serving you it served me john fogarty at a gas station uh hearing credence and obviously it was like halfway stage because they're obviously already taking video of him um, but it was funny. It was really cute to see John Fogarty uh, um, pumping gas, turn to the camera, smile as uh, Credence is playing. So, um, but yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it has to be. I mean, uh, seeing or hearing your game in the wild or anything that you worked on always has to be a little bit of a thrill. I mean, even if even if it's just radio, even if it's whatever, like hearing it in the external world, it's like, oh, this is bigger than me now, which I think is yeah. always a special moment for sure. Well, yeah, I, I remember specifically um, with Lois Lane, um, the first time I heard a Lois Lane song on WLS, it was like, <laughs> that's so cool. It comes back to... I, I watch this show at least once a year. That thing you do, it's a Tom Hanks movie. It's about a rock band who started out in Erie, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. and they go through all of these things, and it's all true. It, it The first time they hear their song on the radio, it's like, and they're, you know, they're racing through the city and hopping up and down. It, it that happened to me too. First time I heard my stuff on the radio was like, ah, that is so cool. Chills and stuff. Um, I love that movie. Um, I lived in Irvine after I left Seattle. Uh, I lived in Irvine for almost two years and I lived in Orange County and the city of Orange is actually the town square of Orange is actually where they shot a lot of um, the the shots for that thing you do. Um, and it's funny cause it's like an older town square and it's funny just to walk around the square and realize like how much, Oh, oh they went to the right here and then here and then here. Um, but it's actually a pretty uh, cool, cool little square if you've never been before. So. Yeah. It, that it looked like you read to me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. There it was, it's orange, California. Yeah. Uh, home, home of orange County. But yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, you rattled off uh, Nightmare on Elm Street earlier. I remember um, a long time ago, you kind of mentioned an interaction that you had with Robert England, a.k.a. Freddy Krueger. Uh, ah, do, you, yes. do you care to share that story? <laughs> well, doing Freddy Krueger, I, I did the music. My partner did all of the sound effects and voiceovers. And the... God public relations person, I think, got him to come out and do the voiceovers for the game and got to sit and chat with him for for a few minutes. Um, he's not as ugly as he is in the movie. <laughs> he's actually a very fine actor, too. Uh, and at that point, um, he was... Uh, probably the key to making that studio successful. They were a startup um, and the Freddy Krueger series was like, oh, that's, that's gold. <laughs> They've got something here. And it was a big, big success. He seemed very intelligent and uh, very kind. Uh, and it's always nice to, to see to meet people. I've, I've met a lot of people uh, when I did trade shows. I would meet musicians. Uh, Stevie Wonder, uh, Keith Emerson, uh, gosh, bands, Night Ranger, uh, 
now I'm, I can't think. <laughs> but <laughs> but you would you would meet these people and go, wow, you know, they're they're actually here and they're nice. And some not so nice. <laughs> sure, we won't talk about them. But no. <laughs> Were there any there, were there any special interactions that you ever had? I mean, you mentioned Bob Moog earlier. Um, was there anybody else that kind of like uh, you're kind of taken aback at how personable they were? Um, not to that extent. Um, but Bob and I were working for the same company, so it was like, no, we're we're coworkers. So. I was never at that stature, <laughs> but boy, uh, offhand, gosh, that's a hard question. Um, well, that's okay. I was just, I was just curious. You don't, you don't have to uh, dox anybody for them being rude or being too nice, but no, it's all good. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I think maybe I, I remember the people who were rude more. This <laughs> is like. Yeah, I'll never forget what he said to me. <laughs> well, we don't we don't need to uh, rake some mud over some people right. for being crappy. It can be a insider secret. So yeah. Um. So after your pinball stints, uh, you were at Microsoft for quite a while, um, and you worked on MechWarrior and Rise of Nations. Um, can you talk about the transition of going from pinball machines to traditional video games and what that experience is like? Well, actually, when uh, Gottlieb went out of business, I was fortunate to get a gig at Fast Interactive. And they were doing, or we were doing, video games. Um, and there was, uh, originally Fast Interactive was... Uh, Battletech, which was actual physical uh, entertainment systems. You would you would pay big money to go sit in a, in a pod that was a recreation of a Mac, and uh, it was extremely entertaining. But the company needed a way to take that storyline. Um, and make money, um, despite the fact of um, Disney was interested in the concept, but it hadn't played out yet. So Fast Interactive um, was the branch of the company that did the PC games. And the I got involved around Mech Warrior 3, I believe. And uh, there was so little room uh, on the disc that I think I only did like the interface loop and a theme. There, were, there was like four or five minutes total that I did for the game. Everything else was sound effects. Um, but I got to do it. So that was fun. Also, while at FASA, um, Disney, uh, I don't know how much I can talk about. I did a location, I did a location game, a location-based game uh, for Disney Engineering, Disney whatever it is. <laughs> Imaginary, yeah. Imaginary. I yeah, I've had a, I've had a couple uh, House of the Mouse employees on here, and it's really funny how scared they are of Disney legal. So I oh, yeah. I completely understand your hesitation for mentioning anything related to the company. So I will be put to death. <laughs> <laughs> there will be none of that on my show. <laughs> not not here, not yet. <laughs> uh, just just silently behind the dumpster when they find out that right. that any anything uh, that maligns them or uh lets any of their ip secrets go yeah <laughs> it's only it's only sunshine mickey ears and smiles over there right, so. right. We, we love disney full stop <laughs> so fasa uh, we came out with mech commander uh the first mech commander and that was a success um and somewhere along the line microsoft 
um, Microsoft Game Studios was in the infancy and they they wanted property. They wanted intellectual property. And uh, having big pockets, it was pretty easy to come over to Chicago and look around and suss it out. You know, is this a good deal? And they, they thought so. So they acquired us, moved the entire creative team out to Redmond, and um, we started working for Microsoft doing Mech Warrior, Mech Commander. Um, and then I got uh, into the uh, big, huge games thing of Rise of Nations, um, which was a big success. Uh, especially for me, I was just going, wow, this is so cool. Uh, to be able to <clears throat> start with a developer who's on the upcoming, it, it was their first thing. Um, an interesting point there is what they originally wanted for Rise of Nations was world music. And I go, oh, okay. And I, I tried for about a week to wrap my head around world music. So I did a lot of studying. I, I grabbed this, that, and this, and that, and listened to stuff. And some of it was just so disturbing. <laughs> On a game level, I, I totally get it. World music is beautiful on its own, but for a gamer to play um, an RTS with this bizarre music going on, it just, I, I couldn't see it working. So what I proposed, and I gave them a demo of what I was thinking, is approach it like a film composer would do. Um, any of the Bond films, if you if you look at, well, Bond just went to Morocco. Well, that's not really ethnic music. It's John Barry doing an interpretation of a hint of the location. And that's kind of where I took it. Um, and certainly not, not all of the things that I did for Rise of Nations were orchestral. Some of them were ethnic instruments. But it, it, I wanted to tie it all together to give sense of location and also the commonality of what the game is. And um, that worked out really well. And the game showed it. Um, it was a very, very successful game with a lot of critical acclaim. Um, and the next game after that was Rise of Nations, Rise of Legends. It's, it's so much of a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't really a sequence. Uh, 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 it, it, wasn't, it wasn't the same kind of name. It was a game on rails telling a story. And yes, you could go off the rails and, and make your choices along the way but it was uh, very much story-based. And thank goodness that at that time, um, people would fought for me to get the budget to do a totally orchestral score. And that was just mind-blowingly cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I had enough time to compose big charts. I had, um, I think it was over 90 minutes to fill. Um, and I had uh, my studio that was actually written in my home studio. Um, my home studio was equipped to at least get it to a certain level. And when it came time to record, I actually had the budget to hire a 35 piece orchestra in um, 
Studio X, which is a very famous, was a very famous uh, recording studio. And it, it, every day I went <laughs> to the recording sessions, it was like, this is so cool. <laughs> I get to do this. <clears throat> and not only just get to do it, but listening to what I created, played by these world-class musicians. These are, these are players from the Seattle Symphony. And just, you, you, I think in all of the sessions, we had to stop once because one of the players raised their hand and said, I, I made a bad note. And it's like, well, yeah, I'm 90 minutes of material, and there's one person once over the period of days, I forget how many days, oh, well, there's one person who made one mistake. <laughs> yeah. And then that and person was immediately fired. Just kidding. No, no. <laughs> I, I appreciate that she said that, because if I would have gone back when I was mixing and heard it, I was going, oh, crap. <laughs> so better she said that. Um, but sure. yeah, I mean, it, it, it was just amazing. I, uh, I will never forget that session, those sessions and, and the opportunity to, to write something substantial. Unfortunately, um, Rise of Legends, uh, when it was released, was released at the same time um, as... <laughs> to say it as another game which has continued to be very profitable um for its creators i so, think we can probably guess what game that is if anybody's yeah, a gamer yeah yeah and um so rise of legends didn't have much of a budget for pr or advertising and i think that that hurt it um, it's sad because I was so proud of what we did, uh, but that's the way life is. You know, you, you think one game that, you know, you, you get paid 10% of what you should is the one that blows up and, and hits the charts. And another one that you just had the time of your life and got paid well is, but I, that's kind of why I always tell myself, you know, don't don't ever think that you know what's going to happen. Put your best foot forward, and you do fine. Yeah, that's definitely been my experience too with making games. Is like, I will put my all into a game, and it'll go nowhere, or I will still put my all in a game, or maybe it'll be on a rushed schedule and. I won't be satisfied with the final output or maybe I'm not really seeing what's all there. I'm not really stoked about the final product and it comes out and it's a huge hit. It's just like, well, damn it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's just like any piece of art, any, anything that you put out in the world and people interact with it, you can never truly predict whether or not something's going to be a hit or not. It is a lot of right time, right place, uh, a lot of luck. A lot of the muse with, was with you, so to speak. Um, yeah, there's a lot of factors that go into you actually releasing a successful piece of art or something that sticks with people. Um, yeah, it's a total crapshoot, regardless of what genre or what, what field that you're making stuff in. So, yeah, yeah. I totally agree. Um, so after that stint, uh, after, after pinball, after video games, uh, you worked... Uh, for IGT and Double Down, um, working on slot machines. So this is how you and I know each other because I was a slot designer for quite a long time. Um, so what are some of the things that you had to learn quickly in order to design audio and music for slot machines? I mean, similar to my question with pinball, I guess, you and I both know this, like the back of our hand for slot machines, but I guess what are some of the things that like you... Um, kind of just know about slot machines that other people kind of take for granted in terms of like just audio cues, music, all that kind of stuff? Probably the first thing you need to, to know is what's involved. Um, the terminology in particular, when I first got to IGT, I didn't know 
the terminology of okay, what do you call it? What is it? What function does it have? How how do you create a sound effect or a piece of music that supports that? And it uh, my my partner in IGT was pretty blunt. He goes, well, it's like composing with a sledgehammer. <laughs> I go, oh, uh, okay. Uh, in other words, slot machines, it, if anybody in your, your audience doesn't know, you walk into a casino and there is a din of noise. And it's not noise, it's cacophony of all of these different slot machines playing at the same time. And uh, we'll get to another point about that. But uh, the sledgehammer analogy is you have to create something that when somebody's sitting in front of it, they're going to be impacted and block out what's going on, like literally on both sides and behind you and all that stuff. Um, after doing video games, I mean, it's not that much different for slot machines. You, uh, you have a limited amount of memory. Um, a lot of things you have to figure out how a loop will work. Uh, in a musical loop, how long is the loop? And how does it uh, interact, let's say, a roll-up, which is a wind sound. A roll-up that's going... Okay, how's that going to interact with the music below it? Is it synced? Probably not. So you have to figure out what to loop, how to loop it, and all of these things that can go from one to another in a split second. And they all have to uh, be within this context of the theme. So that's, that's probably the biggest thing. It's, it's just a lot faster than, than a video game. Um, yeah. you, can, uh, you can blow through slot stuff very quickly and hopefully not... Uh, bore your audience. <laughs> it's, oh, go ahead. Oh, that's always the trick. Uh, when I first got into games, everybody was saying, no, I always turn the music off. You know, and, and it's similar with slot machines. So if you don't present them with something that's entertaining or that becomes boring, yeah, I would turn it off. You know, I'm, I'm a musician, so I, I listen anyway, but, you know, what's he what's he or she doing? Let's see. Let's pick it apart. <laughs> Actually, that's pretty good. Yeah. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll steal some. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We're always passively doing research about anything that we're interacting with. Um, yeah. Uh, for mobile games specifically, uh, I think it's only like 30% of people actually play with sound on. Um, but your point is super important is that if your sound is annoying or grating to them in any, any, any way, then that percentage is going to be much, much lower. Um, yeah. It really just depends on uh, people actually taking the time to listen and making sure that, you know, the sound that there that's there is actually enjoyable. Um, and you were mentioning also earlier about like when people are sitting in front of um saw machines, or even if you're just walking through a casino and trying to make sounds that kind of cut through the cacophony of just noise that's happening the second you're set foot on the casino floor. Um, there's a couple sounds <clears throat> that seem to cut right through. I think you, the most common one typically is the um, the jackpot fire bell, typically when a bonus triggers or something like that, that seems to cut through noise. And it's funny because um, you know, it sounds like a fire alarm, but of course, that's the reason why you pay attention to it because it's grating. You're like, oh, uh, I'm, I'm noticing that. And also, the other one that's really funny that I think a lot of people know about, but maybe they don't know it's from a specific game, uh, Buffalo by Aristocrat. 
it's you can hear it from across the casino typically because it has the eagle screech that happens uh yeah. so if you've ever been on the vegas floor and you've heard an eagle screech it's from buffalo so or other games <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, well, that's, yeah, that's true. Um, and I think the most iconic sounds for me, and that's honestly like why I was so stoked to work for IGT is IGT has the, uh, my favorite version of a, of a slot, like spinning sound ever, like, like the typical slot machine sound, like IGT owns that audio and getting to be able to be like, I have this audio, I can put it in a game. This is the audio that I remember hearing walking through the casino in Reno when I was a kid and being like, all right, I get to play with this now, which is super exciting. So yeah. um, it's always fun when you can dig into a, a pass vault like that. But at the same time, um, that was a fun thing about working with you is that uh, you and I got to, in addition to porting stuff that was legacy content, we also got to make original stuff um, because we worked on a couple uh, licensed music things that we couldn't get the license for. So we made sound-alikes and we had to kind of tiptoe around donna summer's hot stuff uh, <laughs> which was a lot of fun and honestly you killed that mix and i i to this day i still really enjoy uh what you did for the baseline and how much fun it was to collaborate with you on that so yeah that was a lot of fun yeah it's always a challenge and especially knockoffs you, you go okay well i did one for uh igt Oh, what was it? Candy bars. And Kim, the producer, came in and said, I, I want I want the song I want candy, but we don't have the license. And it's like, I love that song. <laughs> how am I gonna how am I gonna change it enough to where it's it is that, but it's not. And it gets back down to, well, the drums, they go. That, that's literally what it is. That's the memorable part about that song. And you could do a lot of creative things not to play I Want Candy when you have that drum beat going on. Right. So it, it's always that challenge of saying, I get that feeling just from that, that drum part and the other stuff may be in the same time signature, but it's not, I want candy. It's, uh, it, music is always a challenge and it, it's always fun to me. Um, every time I do a, a new track to say, okay, I want I know what I want to impart, um, but I'm not sure what instrumentation, what tempo, what uh, what chord progression, you know, all of that stuff. And when you go through it and uh, compose, it's like five bars at a time, four bars at a time. It's like, is that right? No. No, let's try this. Let's try this. Oh, well, if I do this, I have to change that. And it's, it's just a process of, you know, making it work. Um, and that, I find that really fun. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so kind of to round out the conversation, um, have you, do you have a favorite reaction of someone hearing a piece of your music? Um, either during a show in a game, like, do you have a favorite reaction that somebody's had to something you've written? I, gosh, I don't know. I, my work, a lot of my work from uh, Rise of Nations and Rise of Legends <clears throat> is online on YouTube. And I do uh, continue to get fans that reach out to me. And it's, it's like, it's always, I played this when I was a kid, when my, you know, with my dad. And I spent gobs of time of my life and I don't even play the game anymore, but it rings through my head to this day. And we're talking what 15 years later, these aren't kids anymore. These, these are adults saying this and they're writing to me, they're replying on YouTube. And I'm always just really flattered that 
you know, it's, it's sunken into them and it became a part of their lives. Um, I, I think that means more to me than any one other thing is the constant appreciation for what I've done. And, and it's just, and I don't even know how to, <laughs> what to say. It's, it's, it hits me here. This is like, well, gosh, you know, after all the years that I've done stuff, there was that one game that literally people remember me for. Now it's hard to not do that music. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. But a check is always nice, too. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll take either or. Um, Dwayne, thank you so much uh, for sharing your life's work with me um, and just catching up. It's great to see you. Great to talk to you. Um, you're in. You're independent now. Uh, so before we leave, is there anything that you like to plug? Social media sites, cool things happen in your life, ways that people can uh, possibly throw money at you to get some cool, cool sounds and music. I haven't, I haven't figured out how people could throw money at me yet. You, you would think that I would know, but no. Uh, well, as far as social media goes, uh, my website is DwayneDecker.com. Uh, there are links to everything. There's probably much more information than you would ever want to read. But there are links, <laughs> YouTube channels. Um, uh, let's see. I've been doing something on the side lately on YouTube, uh, which I put into um, a playlist. It's called A Minute In. Um, and I created it more out of deference to people who, who want to hear my music, but they don't have time. And the whole issue with composers is that you need to understand and be able to play and create different styles of music. And being a minute a piece gives you the option of listening to little snips of, well, that's classical, that's Brazilian, that's, that's jazz, that's orchestral. And I, I actually fell in love with that. I, I wish I knew how to monetize that because it's so much fun to do these one minute pieces and uh, just a, a photograph of the city. It's a minute in a place, uh, a minute in, in uh, uh, Pittsburgh, a minute in uh, Hollywood, et cetera. I kind of pick and choose stuff um, and not just in the US. Um, that's where it gets really creative because you go, well, okay, you know, I've, I've never been to Africa, <laughs> but I want to write something about this city. And uh, so then you, you have the freedom to do whatever you want, but you also have a guide to say, okay, what would, what's my impression of this place? Um, and I'll do a little research. I'll, I'll, read the wiki and and look at photos and and kind of surmise okay i i get an idea of what this place is but it's so much fun to actually create something just an impression um and then on the other hand i'm creating one uh right now for chicago and it's it's interesting because i i lived in chicago for a while and I always had a great time, great city. The weather stinks, but the city, <laughs> the city is awesome. The, the people, the, everything, I loved it. Yeah, I was just gonna say, if you spent a long time in Chicago, then you probably know it intimately. And uh, being a local in any city for quite some time will always make it make the city feel special to you in a way that other cities just don't resonate with you as much. But yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the way I feel about it. I, and I, from the first day, this this was when Lois Lane was 
we were living in um, Salt Lake. We moved to Chicago. So we got into Chicago uh, the night before Halloween or something like that. And we went in to see our agent the next day. And the first girl I met in Chicago was the girl that I'm married to. <laughs> it, it was like, yeah, all these girls. And I, geez, you know, here she is. <laughs> Literally the first one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, uh, strange how things work out. <laughs> Go figure. All right. All right, Dwayne, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Super fun to catch up and thank you for sharing so much of your life. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Nick. I, I really appreciate this. I, uh, these kind of things scare the crap out of me, <laughs> but it, doing it with you, it was, it was fun. Very, yeah. very much. And I, I appreciate your help. Yeah. I mean, I'm always, I, I you know, me, I'm always going to talk to you because that means that I don't have to do work, but I am technically doing work because <laughs> I'm talking to my audio guy. I just happen to be in his office a little bit longer than I needed to be because I'm always like, hey, Dwayne, tell me that story about Robert England again. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. So, Dwayne, thank you so much. Uh, everybody else, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And we'll catch you next time.